You know, one of the things I love to do when I go to the mall is not to shop, but to go to the ice cream store, gelato places that give you free samples of the various flavors so that you will know what flavors to get. Before I thought to myself that these people who run these companies are so dumb. You see, if someone wants to get a lot of free ice cream samples, they would just get full and not order ice cream. But one day I had the chance to talk to one of these owners or one of these places and ask them why they allow for free samples and how they make money. They told me that giving people free samples actually increased their sales. He told me, yes, there are people like you who take advantage of the free sample system. But the vast majority of people do not. In fact, by giving free samples, customers who walk into the store with the intention of only getting one scoop of ice cream or gelato end up getting two or three scoops and paying a higher price because they can't decide on just one flavor, having now tasted multiple flavors that they love. In fact, that's why movies have trailers and previews. And even now, with Netflix and Disney Plus shows and series with previews to entice you to watch by giving you a glimpse of what you can expect and see. In the same way, God gives us glimpses of the future in the Scriptures to encourage and to comfort us. You see, Bible prophecy is not to cause us to fear more or to become confused. It should serve to challenge us to persevere and press on in whatever we are experiencing, knowing, anticipating, and looking forward to the amazing future God has planned for those who are in a relationship with Him, especially in this stress-filled, sinful world in which we live. We really do need to see glimpses of glory to encourage us. You see, my friends, in the midst of a world that seems to be on a rapid decline, with societal and morality breaking down left and right, where logic and discernment is thrown out the window, with people getting angry and polarized over the smallest of things, and with so many of our own issues in life unresolved, and we feel a spirit of depression, it is even more important that we know what will happen in glory to ensure that our eyes are pointed heavenward. Like many of the prophets of old, this is what the prophet Zephaniah wanted to do for God's people to give them a glimpse of glory so that they will live rightly and to be encouraged knowing that they in their context and we today, as we are one day closer to the coming of Christ, will be encouraged of what God has planned for the future. You see, my friends, knowing God's plan for the future teaches us how to live in the present. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Zephaniah. Chapter 3, we're going to take a look at verses 9 to 13. The book of Zephaniah, after the book of Haggai, uh, excuse me, after the book of Habakkuk and before the book of Haggai. It's in the minor prophet section of your Bible. The book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, we're going to take a look at verses 9 to 13. Now, if you were to read this short book, you will see the word, the day of the Lord, referenced many times. Usually, the day of the Lord refers to the coming day of our Lord, when He will come back again and He will bring about judgment and punishment. And that is the primary emphasis of the day of the Lord in the Scriptures. However, the Bible also teaches that the day of the Lord is a time when God's great blessings will be given to all those who have turned rightly to Him. So not only is it a time of judgment, but it is also a time of blessings. 
And in these five verses that we'll be studying, through his prophet Zephaniah, God will announce blessings for all mankind when the Lord comes back again. Let's take a look at some of these glimpses of glory so that we can be encouraged in the world that we live. I read now verses 9 to 10. For then I will restore to the people a pure language, that they all may call in the name of the Lord to serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. The first glimpse of glory that God gives to encourage the people to the prophet Zephaniah is a glimpse of, number one, His complete restoration. God's complete restoration. Restoration is bringing back something to a condition that was like how it was when it was new, or in some cases, to a better condition. And the idea in these verses is that God will make everything all right. In fact, what God does is that He promises that in the future, He will restore the world to a point where everyone will call on the name of the Lord, as it should have been since the beginning of time before Adam and Eve fell, and when sin entered the world and God's original plan was messed up. The restoration here of a pure language is the idea of a renewal of once defiled lips. It means that nations and peoples that previously blasphemed the name of the Lord in their worship of false gods and rejected the living God, Yahweh, will now worship the true God, the one true God. They will call on the name of the Lord, and it is evidenced by everyone's desire to serve the one true God. Wouldn't that be great? One day, everyone on earth will have the same belief in the true God, and you no longer have to fight over who's right and who's wrong, and you no longer have to endure the ridicule of people who make fun of you for believing in Jesus. In fact, in verse 10, we're told that in the future, the Jewish people from the farthest reaches of the world will now come and bring worship to the God that they have rejected. Instead of being scattered from Jerusalem, they will come back to this capital city of Jerusalem and bring God praise as the Lord Jesus rules from Jerusalem. They will finally acknowledge the Messiah, Savior Jesus, whom they have not recognized for centuries. Now, how does this relate to our everyday lives? My friends, getting a glimpse of glory and knowing of God's complete restoration plan we then remember as believers in Jesus Christ, we too will be able to experience the greatness of the restored new heavens and new earth as described in Revelations chapter 21 and 22. You see, God is all about restoration. He has been wanting to redeem the world ever since man fell. That's why He sent His Son, Jesus, to die for the sins of mankind. He has been on the mission to restore this earth to its original, beautiful, perfect condition as He so perfectly created, created it since day one. And He will succeed. That is His promise. Sadly, some people think that God in His Word is only about condemnation. Don't do this. Don't do that. Shame on you if you have sinned. My friends, if you read the Scriptures, God's heart is a heart of restoration. He can't wait for His people from across the world of every ethnicity to be in intimate fellowship with Him. He can't wait 
to be in an intimate relationship with you? When will you call upon His name and worship Him and serve Him faithfully, the one who is worthy? Because He's made a way through His Son, Jesus, so that we can be friends with Him. I'm reminded of the story of Jim Corley and his friend Alex. Jim met his friend Alex at a car dealership where Alex worked to try to invite him back to church. Alex said, Jim, I feel like a hypocrite every time I go to church because I fail to live for Christ so often. Jim asked Alex, what do you call this part of the dealership nodding to the area outside his cubicle? You mean the showroom? Yes, and what's behind the showroom, past the parts counter? Alex said confidently, the service department? What if I told you I didn't want to bring my car to the service department because there was something wrong with it, Jim asked. Alex replied, that would be crazy. That's the whole point of the service departments, to fix cars that aren't running right. Jim replied, you're absolutely right. Now let's get back to our initial conversation. Instead of thinking of church as a showroom where image is everything and everything is perfect, start thinking of it as God's service department. Helping people get back in running order with God is what the church is all about. My friends, God is a God of restoration. Whatever you have done, whatever you are going through, whoever you are in your spiritual life, the promise of glory is that God will restore you to a perfect relationship with Him because of Jesus. You know, sometimes I look at this world with its corrupt people and sinful ways and wonder how they seem to get away with everything, how this world seems to reward those who sin and steal, how those who do not call upon the name of the Lord are honored and blessed and we who are trying to stand bold for the Lord and do the right thing are ridiculed. Will it always be this way? The answer is absolutely not. The hope of glory is that one day, perhaps soon, God will return and restore everything the way it should be, where those who worship and serve the one true God will be honored and rewarded, and serving Him will be the highest of honors, nothing else. I can't wait for that time. I hope you can't wait for that time as well. But in the meantime, don't live for what is temporary. Live for what is eternal, where there is complete restoration. Look with me at verse 11. In that day, you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Here in Zephaniah's prophecy, he gave the people of Israel and to us another glimpse of glory. In verse 11, he tells Israel specifically that they will no longer feel ashamed for their previous rebellions and disobediences. Those who are wicked, those who are evil and unrepentant will have been judged and they will have been taken away. Those who are left are those who acknowledge the Lord as the true God. Now, why would there be no shame, and why is that a glimpse of glory and something that will serve to encourage us? You see, as someone said, a feeling of shame comes from an awareness 
of guilt. And there will be no more guilt because God said he would remove pride, remove sin from their hearts. In our Asian-based shame culture, shame is something that Satan uses to get us to think that somehow we're not worth anything in the sight of God, that somehow we're not eligible and worthy to serve the great and holy God, or that God could never save someone as terrible as me. How many countless people have left the church because they feel ashamed for what they've done? How many people do not come to church because they feel that what they have done can never be forgiven and they feel so ashamed? The answer, sadly, is many. And it's not because the Bible says that they can't have fellowship with Christians and worship God. It's because a very ungracious and judgmental church body does not welcome them. As Dr. Les Parrott says of shame, Shame is a spin-off from guilt. We may feel guilty for what we did, but we feel ashamed of who we are. But do we have to be ashamed of who we are? No, because we are children of the King. We are sinners saved by grace. The blood of Jesus has wiped away our sins. We can come boldly before the very throne room of grace. And for all eternity, we will be proclaiming proudly and in worship that we, who are the worst of sinners, have been saved by God's grace through His Son, Jesus. That's why here in this church, one of our cultural values is that we are a church for the spiritually broken. If you've messed up, you are still very welcomed here because we want to reflect the heart of a forgiving God. You see, the second glimpse of glory, number two, is this. Sinners are no longer ashamed. Sinners are no longer ashamed. We are no longer in need to be ashamed in Christ and for all eternity because of the work of Jesus. We do not need to feel shame knowing that we are redeemed people. If you've truly confessed and asked God for forgiveness, His shed blood covers your sins. Therefore, God no longer condemns you for a certain sinful act, and you should not let others guilt you into thinking that you are somehow still a terrible person. God's forgiveness in Christ is sufficient for us to no longer be ashamed. And if this is God's perspective about the matter, who are we to continue to judge and be so unforgiving. Now listen carefully. This truth is not a license to feel shameless for your sin, which is an attitude punished by God. Christians who sin and are unrepentant should be ashamed. What we're talking about is the assurance that because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, we no longer have to feel ashamed, nor to flaunt our sins but to allow us to be guiltless so that we can have a new perspective in life. This wonderful truth does not allow guilt to overcome us. We don't have to care what other people say or think about us. I've repented of my sin, and I am a forgiven child of God. I want you to think how freeing and wonderful truth this is. This is why oftentimes the hardest thing to do is to admit your failures. 
You know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the most successful recovery programs for addictions and alcoholics, you know what step one is? Step one is this. We admitted we are powerless over our addiction, that our lives have become unmanageable. If we can't get to step one to admit that we are sinners and have sinned, then we will always feel ashamed trying to hide something that is true to us. You know, there's a mega church I know where people ask each other, what's your addiction? It's not that they're proud of their sin, but it is the recognition that we're all works in progress. We're all struggling with something. Can any of you raise your hand and tell me, Pastor, this morning I'm not struggling with anything. We all struggle with something, and there's nothing to be ashamed of because we're sinners. Once we acknowledge and identify the areas of our struggle, whether it be anger, lust, jealousy, pornography, covetousness, then once we've identified it, then we can deal with it. Then we can ask for God's forgiveness and with the Holy Spirit's help to work specifically in these areas of issue. The glimpse of glory knowing that we will all stand before the Lord for all eternity as forgiven and redeemed people means we don't have to be ashamed that we are sinners and are not perfect. And so once we identify these areas that we struggle with, then we deal with it for God's glory. So my friends, if you're going through something in your life, if you've messed up, if you've fallen into sin, there is hope, there is forgiveness, there is salvation through Jesus Christ. But step one, you have to acknowledge that it is sin. Nothing to be ashamed of because Jesus Christ has forgiven you. But understanding this truth to be free from the guilt and shame associated with sin. Look at verse 12 with me. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The third glimpse of glory given by the prophet Zephaniah to the people is that in the future... The Jewish people will be humble and meek, not trusting in themselves, but wholly dependent upon God. This is a prophecy that states that only truly humble people are left on earth who demonstrate a dependence upon God and not upon themselves. You see, today, what is so frustrating is that there are just so many arrogant people today. Perhaps you're one of them. They really believe and truly believe they have achieved success by the work of their own two hands. They do not give glory to God. They trust in their own natural talents. They trust in their own skills. They trust in themselves and trust in their own abilities. They trust in their own wealth and influence and position. They do not trust in the Lord. And it doesn't seem like God is doing anything to humble them. But my friends, in this glimpse of glory, the words of Scripture come true. God humbles the proud meaning prophetically those who pridefully think they can achieve eternal success and provide for their own salvation will be humbled when they realize they can't and be cast into hell. Those who are left on earth at the end are those who are humble enough to recognize they cannot save themselves. And there's, that, there's no amount of good works that can overcome your bad works. And so they trust in the name of the Lord. In fact, in one of the Beatitudes... Jesus Christ said himself, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Listen carefully. The future is not for those who are arrogant and proud. 
The future is for those who are meek and humble enough to trust in God. Trust in God is a gauge by which you show just how humble you are as you turn over control of your life to the Lord. You see, my friends, glimpse of glory number three is this. The humble wins at the end. The humble wins at the end. A.W. Tozer once wrote, The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and helpless as God declared him to be, but paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God of more importance than angels. In himself, nothing in God, everything. That is the motto of a humble man. Humility is not going around and saying, oh, woe is unto me, I'm a terrible person, I have no talents, I'm a nobody, I'm a humble person, everyone's better than me. That's not the idea of biblical humility. Because even people who are like that can fake humility. Humility is understanding that apart from God, we can do nothing. In Him, everything in myself, nothing. A few weeks ago, I was preaching at a church in New York City. I met an African man named Solomon who served me in every possible way as I first stepped into that church. Perhaps he was assigned to help me. Asked if I needed anything, if I needed coffee or water, or even to have a seat. I thought to myself, what a humble man. Then in between services, I got a chance to talk to him and asked him about his family background. Turns out he was in New York City with his family because their family was in the diplomatic corps serving in the United Nations. I was touched even more. Here is a man who was being served day and night in the UN and in the church. He's serving me. What a humble man. You see, when we understand what humility truly is, we understand that in myself, I'm nothing. In God, everything. You know, when you think of Moses, you think of a great leader. In fact, he is portrayed in the Bible as a little bit hot-headed, and who would blame him with the grumbling people he had to lead? The word you would not use for him is humble. And yet in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, it is described of Moses. Moses was very humble, the humblest man on the face of the earth. How? How can this man be that humble? You see, his humility was shown in his acceptance of what God had ordained and planned for his life. He accepted God's plan for his life, even leading God's people to the edge of the promised land, but never going in. Can you imagine for 40 years leading a group of grumbling people to enter the promised land, and just at the doorstep, he is not allowed to go in? And I can only imagine the disappointment of Moses, all that he endured to lead God's people to the wilderness, but unable to enter 
because of the grumbling of the people that caused him to sin. Whenever I lead groups to the Holy Lands and we get to Mount Nebo in Jordan, I sometimes get emotional when I think about Moses so close on the top of Mount Nebo being able to see across the River Jordan into the Promised Land, so close. And in my mind, I'm thinking it's not fair that God would not allow him to go in. But then that's when I'm reminded of Moses' great humility. No complaints from him. An acceptance of what was God's final plans. Friends, humility has nothing to do with temperament. It has everything to do with attitude. Humility has nothing to do with temperament. The greatest leaders, the most vibrant, loud, can be also the most humble because humility has nothing to do with temperament. It has everything to do with attitude. So let those who are arrogant of heart and boastful be arrogant and boastful because they will not be so boastful at the end. The glimpse of glory is that the humble shall inherit the earth, for it is the humble of heart that accepts Christ as Savior and as Lord of their life, submitting totally to what He has planned for you. The humble wins at the end. Verse 13, the remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. The fourth glimpse of glory from the prophet Zephaniah is that in the end, the people of Israel will be different in their conduct as they once acted. They will do nothing wrong and speak no lies. In fact, they are pictured like a flock of sheep grazing in peace, nothing disturbing them and making them afraid. And here's the point here. When one does not sin, one does not need to be afraid. In their cleansed condition, one finds peace and security. In the same way, for us believers who have placed our trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we can look ahead to that time when we will be in our glorified state and we will never sin again. We will have a sinless body not capable of sitting again. And in that condition, there's real peace and security. We never have to worry that we will disappoint God, that God's punishment and discipline will be upon us. We will be at peace. I've been asked many a times, Pastor, when we all get to heaven, we have our glorified bodies. What if there's another Lucifer moment, like some angel decides that he wants to lead a rebellion? And I know myself. I'm a rebellious person. I may be fooled and I may be rebelled, a rebelling against God, and I may be cast out of heaven. Do you ever get to think that question? Do you ever have that question in your mind? I have to assure them it will never happen. Even if there's hypothetically another angel that decides to lead a rebellion, you won't follow because you won't have a sin nature anymore. You and I will not sin again ever in our glorified state. Read the book of Romans. You know, I've met people who can never find peace or rest knowing that their past sins or their past lives will be discovered or knowing that the sin that they're hiding will be revealed. Imagine if your thought life 
was published for all to read. What a terrible way to live with hidden sins. In fact, the author of the book, The Scarlet Letter, vividly describes what happens to someone who hides a great sin. In the book, the sinner Dimsdale suffers great health issues, which is a manifestation of his hidden sin. Only at the end does he find peace when he confesses it, unfortunately, at the end of his life. But now imagine in the future a condition where we don't have to worry that we will have a sin that we will be punished for, that somehow sin will win over us again. We don't have to worry that we will be a disappointment to God. We will not have to be afraid that sins will be found out about our lives, that God will use our sins and condemn us. Because without sin in that glorified state, there is peace and security. That's what the forgiveness of the cross does. Jesus' death on the cross allows us to live in peace and security, knowing that the life of sin we live can no longer be used to condemn us. And that's our fourth glimpse of glory. Perfect peace in our cleansed hearts. Perfect peace in our cleansed heart. My friends, today, you and I don't have to live with unsettled hearts or have sleepless nights worried about the weight of our sins because God's forgiveness through Jesus' death lifts our burden. Our sins have been wiped away by the blood of Jesus. He took upon Himself our sins and died on the cross. Our sins were nailed at the cross. It was paid for. And therefore, the weight of sin can give us peace when it is no longer there. MacArthur shared this story. It is said that a flippant young man remarked to a preacher in mocking fashion, you say that unsaved people carry a great weight of sin. Frankly, I feel nothing. How heavy is sin? 10 pounds, 50 pounds, 80 pounds, 100 pounds? The preacher thought for a moment, then replied, if you laid a 400-pound weight on a corpse, would it feel the load? The young man was quick to say, of course not. It's dead. Driving home his point, the preacher said, the person who doesn't know Christ is equally dead. And though the load is great, he feels none of it. That's why while we worry about sin, the unbeliever doesn't worry about sin. They can party all they want. But the Christian, unlike the average non-Christian, is not indifferent to the weight of sin. That's why when we sin, the Holy Spirit convicts us. He is actually hypersensitive to it. Having come to Jesus Christ, his senses are awakened to the reality of sin. His sensitivity to sin intensifies as he matures spiritually. But the wonderful thing is that in the future, without a sin nature, sin has no effect on us. Yes, we are sensitive to sin today. It's a wonderful thing because the Holy Spirit is working. But one day, we never have to feel guilty. We never have to struggle again. We will always do the right thing, and it will bring us joy, perfect peace, because of the cleansed hearts we have. To live with perfect peace and security in our hearts is such a wonderful glimpse of glory. Not a worry in the world, because sin has no hold over us, can't get to us. 
We can sleep in perfect peace because our eternity is secured and our past sins cannot be used to condemn us. There's a story of an Arab chief who tells the story of a spy who was captured and then sentenced to death by a general in the Persian army. This general had the strange custom of giving condemned criminals a choice between the firing squad and the big black door. As the moment for execution drew near, the spy was brought to the Persian general who asked the question, what will it be, the firing squad or the big black door? The spy hesitated for a long time. It was a difficult decision. But eventually he chose the firing squad. Quick, simple. Moments later, shots rang out, confirming his execution. The general turned to his aide and said, they always prefer the known way to the unknown. It is characteristic of people to be afraid of the unidentified and undefined, yet we did give him a choice. The aide then said, sir, what lies beyond the big black door? Freedom, replied the general, freedom. I've only known a few brave souls, brave enough to take it. But my friends, God has given us two options that are not shrouded in mystery, but both made known to us. One is the door to death, the other is the door to life and freedom. And yet some continue to take the known path to death instead of the known path to life, perhaps. These reminders of glimpses of glory will remind us of the door we should be walking towards. God gives us many glimpses of heaven throughout the Scriptures to encourage us to press on in the Christian life and to be settled of heart because can't you wait for the time where God's restoration is complete, where sinners are no longer ashamed, where the humble wins at the end, where there's perfect peace because of our cleansed hearts. May God challenge each one of us in times like this to live a life holy and pleasing to Him, to be steadfast in our Christian faith, that we will be unmovable because we know that we are sinners saved by grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. What a wonderful reminder in these glimpses of glory of how the end state will be. I can't wait for that time. I can't wait when You will make things all right. I can't wait when You will reward the humble of heart who have chosen to seed their life and given You control of their life. I can't wait for that perfect peace when sin no longer reigns, we no longer have to struggle with our sin nature, and we will just enjoy doing the right thing to honor our Lord. I can't wait when you will bring back to, this, to your original creation your idea of a beautiful place where we will be able to intimately walk with you and fellowship with you as the closest of friends. And all of this made possible because of your son, Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he did on the cross. Thank you 
that we can keep our eyes and mind on Him, and it will help us live this life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.